Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all and to praise our Lord together. Big thank you to the worship team and all those who came out last night to praise the Lord. That was a great time and really uh, an encouragement. And man, it's so good to sing praises to our God together and to meditate on his word and to take um, those exhortations to heart, to praise him, to trust him, to fear him. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 today. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are awesome, that you have given us life, that you are love, and that we are known as Christians by our love one for another. We praise you, Lord, that you are faithful, you are kind, you cause your sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and we are justified only by what Jesus has done on Calvary, having provided atonement for our sins. Thank you for the gospel, thank you for your people. And thank you for this opportunity you've given us to gather together in your name, to praise you, to read your word, and to draw near to you in faith. And I pray we'd be encouraged and edified, exhorted, challenged as we seek you today in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard the statement, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Many times it does ring true. It would be better to prevent illness by washing your hands than to get sick and spread it around. Uh, if you've ever worked on, in heights and you were required to tie off, I know as someone who felt very confident in high places, like, I don't need to tie off. But it'd be much better to tie off when a chance, is impro- a chance of falling is improbable than having to be scraped up off the ground outside because you weren't prepared, because you didn't tie off, because an accident happened. And the funny thing about so many preventable accidents are, is that people did not believe it would actually happen to them. They didn't believe that they would be the victim. It's like people just having fun on a balcony with friends and they lost their balance. Someone who has, is driving home after drinks with friends has done so countless times until they wrap their car around a tree. Like they just They didn't see it coming even though they had had this risk over and over. It wasn't until it actually caught up to them that they realized that they were in danger. Like, they knew they were in danger when it was too late. I was reading this week in Judges 1 of Adonai Bezek, and he's a good example of this. He didn't realize the danger of his pride. It says in Judges 1-7, after he had been administered justice, he had been hunted down by the people of Judah and they had cut off his thumbs and toes. It says this in Judges 1-7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. It's like he treated conquered kings with contempt, not thinking he would be the one conquered someday, not thinking he would be the one deprived of his thumbs and great toes. And, and I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm like, I love how the whole Bible is open to us. We can go anywhere, and, and God is, he has truth for us there. The dangers of pride. And when it comes to a warning, like I don't know if Adonai Bezek was actually warned about his, besides his own conscience, of his pride, but 
When it comes to warnings, faith that they are actually, they could happen, is a key to heeding them, right? It's like you can hear a warning, you can read a warning. Like you can be handed a warning and not even read it. Like how many times have you bought a tool and you didn't go through the warnings about the ways that it could hurt you? Because you're like, I know how to use this, no problem. I'm not going to get hurt by this tool. But you can still get hurt by it. You can read it. It could be in your language. You can understand the pictures and the risks. But you can choose to ignore it because you, you believe it doesn't really apply to you. It's not going to hurt me. King Nebuchadnezzar was warned for his pride. Daniel told him, like, you know, repent. God's giving you a chance to repent of your pride. And he did not heed the warning. It says for seven years, his sense left him, and he became like a beast. After seven years, this is what his response was to the Lord in Daniel 4.34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love that he lifted his eyes to heaven and his understanding returned to him. It wasn't the other way around. He looked to the Lord and he understood. He, he understood his need to praise God and to humble himself. It took him seven years. And what will it take us to recognize our pride when we see the risk that it runs for us? But God's will shall be done. He is good and glorious. And blessed are those who honor him. We pick up our passage in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. The author's been saying, by faith in Christ, we have boldness to come by a new and living way to God, a way that even the priests couldn't come under the law, because Jesus offered himself once for all time for the sins of mankind, and the letter to Hebrews is really showing the Mosaic law was weak and unprofitable in that it could not provide permanent remission for sins. It could provide no assurance of salvation. And Hebrew Christians raised under the law had this tendency, this temptation to return back to the law and to offer sacrifices for remission of sins when Jesus had once for all paid the penalty. He had paid it. There was no more sacrifice for sins. The, the temple worship, it was a shadow of the real, which is heavenly and enduring. So if they continued to bring animals for sacrifice for remission of sins, not just a peace will offering, not a free offering, but for sins, it was a result of ignorance at best and unbelief at worst. That the, the sacrifice of Christ was not enough to cleanse from sin. It was, they could add to it in some way. There was no more offering possible for sin because Jesus paid it all. Did you know that the law of Moses dealt with uh, sin committed in ignorance differently than sin done willfully or presumptuously? There was a difference. And it was the same for Jew and Gentile alike who were in the camp. 
If it was discovered that people had sinned out of ignorance, there was a meat offering, a drink offering, and a sin offering they would give for atonement and forgiveness. It would be forgiven them. But listen to Numbers 15.30. It says, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. That word presumptuously, it, it means more than just assuming. It means arrogantly, insolently, willfully, in bold defiance of conscience or violation of known duty. So it was knowing what the law said and doing, uh, dis- disobeying the law intentionally. It's really saying, I know better than God. And right after these verses, there's an example. There was a man who was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. He was gathering sticks, which was in violation of the law. He was put in a ward. It said that guidance from the Lord was sought, and God commanded the man who sinned, with full knowledge of the law, be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. There was no sacrifice possible for him because he sinned against the knowledge of the truth. He knew the law. He had heard it. Therefore, he was obligated to obey. No sacrifice for him. And this end, his end, um, and it was the congregation who was to stone him. They were all involved. So they all realized this is, this is a, a serious, sobering situation. That willful disobedience brings judgment upon us, and it awaits any who do the same. That man's sin brought reproach upon the Lord, so he was cut off. So immediate, merciless judgment was required under law. That's what the people expected. So he's speaking to Hebrews. He's speaking to people who would understand this expectation of judgment. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Right after this, so the very following chapter, after the man was stoned for gathering sticks, there was a Levite named Korah and others with him who rose against Moses and Aaron and accused them of being proud and power-hungry And when the exact opposite was true. It was they who were power-mad and wanting more authority. Moses falls on his face before the Lord He says, bring all you 250 Levites, these were leaders, they were to put fire in their censers and appear before the Lord. The next day, the the Korah and his followers were on one side and Moses is on the other. The earth opens up and Korah is swallowed up and all of his followers with him. The men who had the two, the 250 men who had censers that they had put fire in, fire went out from those censers and consumed them. Everyone sees this happen. It's like they were, they were burned by the fire they lit themselves, and God's justice was done. It says in Numbers 16.35, And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So sin, the expectation of judgment, was plain to the Hebrews as gravity. What goes up must come down. They're like, yeah, absolutely. We've seen this over and over under law. 
continuing in verse 28 of Hebrews 10. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The rejection of the law of Moses, it meant death without mercy. There was no chance of atonement for you. You must die for your sin if you sinned willfully. And it was like trampling over the Ten Commandments by sinning willfully. And he says, how much worse would the punishment be for those who trample the Son of God, who shed his own blood to save you? That's a very serious, like you would expect judgment from the law, and Christ is even more precious. How terrible to treat the atoning blood of Christ, which sanctifies us as an unclean thing, insulting God who has saved us. Have you ever considered how sin insults God, who's given us the truth and the Holy Spirit? Now, the King James, instead of insults, it puts despite. And we use the word despite like... uh, You know, despite being old, he ran a mile, right? So in spite of. But really, uh, the difference between the two, um, to, to be spiteful is to willingly irritate someone. To be despiteful carries the idea of despising, of being hateful and malicious, so you're, you're hating on God. You're being spiteful towards God in trampling the blood of Jesus, treating it like nothing, knowing he's done all he, he could do to forgive us of our sins. So the context of the passage, how Jews and their law expected judgment when they broke the law, and the warning wasn't to just those Gentiles over there. You know, they're in trouble when they keep sinning, when they sin against knowledge of the truth. There's no sacrifice offering for them. No, he's talking about Christians who insulted God by trampling the Son of God by trying to justify themselves by their works, by trying to earn God's favor when he had given it to them. This warning is given of the possibility that believers would depart from faith in Jesus and start placing their faith in themselves or their works or their sacrifices to save them, to make them clean and righteous before God. The old covenant of law, it could be broken. And the new covenant, you know, you can depart from it. You can choose that you have no part in that and go back to the law. And apostasy, it's a departure from something to something. It's a departure from grace back to law. It's a departure from grace back to sin. If you choose to voluntarily remove your parachute before the jump, you are headed for trouble. You are headed for ruin. That's your only way that you're going to survive that fall. And you can say, well, there's been some people somewhere, I think, who have survived falling from 10,000 feet. Well, do you want to put your faith in that, what you think you've heard? Or in Christ, who will save, who has forgiven, who has once for all made an offering of sin of himself? Please turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. This is a verse I read, this series of verses I read this week that really impacted me. And when God impacts us, it's always for good. It's for our good. So we would realize our need to change and recognize how much God loves us and how, how good he is to warn us 
of the potential ways we can wander from grace. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known this way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, why would Peter say that it would be better for someone to never know the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the way of righteousness, and then to know and turn from it? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, it would be better for you not to know Jesus ever? How can that be? Well, in a sense, there's more hope for the worst sinner in the world who doesn't know Jesus because they can go to Jesus. They can go to Jesus and be forgiven of all their sin. They can be made new. They can be washed clean. Their sins can all be atoned for. But what hope is there for a person who knows the truth as a Christian and turns from Christ and his commands? If you've known the truth, if you've known Christ and you turn from him, well, there's no hope for you because it's only in Christ. Apostates cut themselves off from the only possible way of forgiveness and salvation. Dogs return to their vomit and pigs wallow in the mire. These are pretty disgusting references, especially to a Jew. These would be unclean animals. Uh, even the money from the sale of a dog was not allowed to be brought in the temple because that was an abomination before God. And they're just acting according to their nature. For a Jew's life to be compared to that of a dog or a pig, it was really sobering. It got their attention. How can you profess to love the one you refuse to obey? So if you are now a new creation, you've been born again, the spirit of the living God is in you, guess who you will begin to follow, who you will begin to live like, more like Christ. You'll follow his commands because you have a new nature within you. The spirit of the living God is in you. And if these verses, when we read this and we go, you know, this really makes me concerned about this person. I wonder about them. Are they, have they wandered from the truth? Brothers and sisters, you're missing the whole point. This isn't about them. This is about you. This is about me. This is that the one who could depart from the faith, it could be me. It could be you. And that's why he's writing this to the Hebrews. He's saying, guys, don't, don't dismiss the fact that you can go back to works. You can choose a life of sin. You can choose to reject Jesus having known him because you think you can save yourself. This was written to Christians. It's a needful uh, passage for all the church to hear. The brief quotes of the Lord in verse 30, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people, they're taken from the Song of Moses. You can read that in Deuteronomy 32, 35 and 36. And the context of this is the promise and warning of judgment of God upon his own people. And later in Hebrews, we'll read that God, he disciplines and corrects those who he loves, just like a father, a son in whom he delights. So God corrects us not because he hates us, not because he wants to cut us off, but because we have wandered from him, he's correcting us so we'll have relationship with him again. It's a comfort to us that 
God did judge the Jews many times. They went into captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom was taken out by Syria. Rome sacked, so the Romans sacked Jerusalem, but God still calls them my people. He never stopped calling them my people. He called them my people even when they sinned. He called them my people even when they broke his commands, even when they broke his covenant. And he installed a new covenant. Still his people. But the severity of the trampling of Jesus underfoot, treating the new covenant as ordinary, or insulting the Holy Spirit, that really can't be overstated of how bad it is. And that's the point being made here. Thus, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living God. Right? It was a fearful thing when the ground opened up and Korah and his followers were swallowed alive. It was a fearful thing when fire came out from the Lord and consumed those Levites, who everyone looked at to be holy men of Israel, and they were consumed. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who, can, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We ought to fear the Lord. We ought to hold him in great reverence. When David sinned in numbering the people, he was given a choice by the prophet Gad of three things. Do you remember what they are? So he, was, he said, you can have seven years of famine, three months of falling by your enemies in battle, or three days of pestilence from the Lord. And this is what David said in 2 Samuel 24, 14. And David said to God, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. David's like, I want to be in God's hands. The pestilence will be rough, but he's merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. At the end of the appointed days, David bought a threshing floor. He built an altar to the Lord. He offered burnt and peace offerings. The Lord was then entreated for the land, and the plague ceased. And so that sacrifice that he gave, it preceded the Lord hearing and healing the land. The sacrifice Jesus has made is already done. So we get to go right to the end of this and entreat the Lord who hears our prayers, who restores, who forgives, who heals. So what, what great access we have to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the day for us to return to the Lord in repentance, as David did. Not with a promise to do better. Not with an offering of sacrifice. But by faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice given once for all. Faith in Jesus. Hebrews 10.32 But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. The writer of Hebrews, he says, think back to your early days of being born again and following Jesus. You were illuminated by the gospel. You faced struggles with what? Sufferings, reproach, tribulation for the sake of Jesus and the followers that you joined together to help. And the one who wrote this had been in prison and said, you, you were happy to be plundered to help me, to associate with me and identify with me when it meant trouble for you. You had compassion on me. 
Now, we're not told exactly how, but somehow, some way, things had changed with these Hebrews. It wasn't a sound decision, logically or theologically, yet they reverted back to offering sacrifices for their sin rather than resting in the forgiveness provided by the sacrifice of Jesus. They had ceased to walk in faith and obedience to Christ and were more concerned about the opinions of other people. And their assurance of salvation faltered by this pressure to conform, perhaps by following the law or throwing off all restraint and plunging into sin. They were looking at their their own uh, keeping of the law as a measure of their righteousness. And maybe since Jesus had sacrificed everything for them, they thought it was unnecessary to make sacrifices to obey him. What does it mean to obey the gospel? Apostle Peter, he is, an, uh, I would say, an authority on the subject. If you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. The context of this passage is how knowledge of the price, the great price that Jesus has paid to redeem us, prompts us to walk in the fear of the Lord and holiness. You guys know when there's like in a really expensive car parked next to you that you're like, that's one I don't want to hit. That would be a costly bill. (laughs) Or if it's your car, you you park across two lanes and irritate everybody because you don't want your car hit. But the reality is, you know that this thing has value. And so you're going to treat it differently because it's a valuable asset. 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We'll just stop there. We know that the earth is not our home, that our forgiveness has been secured with the blood of Jesus, our salvation purchased by his sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite value more than all of the the gold and precious cut gems and valuable assets that this world values. We are, our eyes have been opened to recognize Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. So we follow Him in obedience rather than our aimless conduct in the pursuit of sin. And sincere love of the brethren, it's evidence that we have been born again, that the Holy Spirit is living within us. And it seems that the Hebrews, they lost sight of the price that was paid to secure their redemption. And they forgot the price they had already paid with their suffering for him, with their trials and difficulties. Following Jesus, it's a costly choice, but there's no salvation or hope or love anywhere else. It's only found in him. You know, not one person complains about a purchase they believe is worth it. 
You can have that Rolls Royce or Bentley. If you believe it's worth every dollar, you're not going to complain. It costs, oh, it had to cost so much. Well, you value it. So you obviously thought it was a good investment, right? You're going to complain about having this great house because it costs you too much. No, you're happy to have the house. Like you're, you're not focused on like, oh, that money went out of my account and now I'm sad. You're like, no, look at this great thing that I have now. You don't have to buy something super expensive. It's like, I have a new phone. Or I got new socks. Boy, they're comfortable. I'm, I was happy to trade my socks, my money, for these socks. You know, we have salvation. We have forgiveness. And what we gave for it is our sin. He's forgiven us all of our sin. He's taken away our debt and our destination that we are headed to hell, but now we are going to be with him who's purchased us. So we value him, not the old life that was in sin, him. So because we value him, we follow him, we obey him, we treat him with reverence. We say, I don't want to insult him because he loves me, because he's given everything to have me. So I invite him into every area of my life. I want to be born again. We get excited to buy things that get old. But anything you buy cannot be compared with the gospel. Christ's gift should never get old. It's the most precious thing ever because we have him. Hebrews 10.35 Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. God rewards all those who trust in him, who make Jesus their confidence by faith. People under the law, they had a degree of confidence in that like, okay, I've ticked the box. I have offered the meat offering. I've offered the drink offering. I've offered the sin offering. And here's the blood of the offering. And so I can go into this place. The priest could do that. Or I can now, I I am atoned for because I followed this checklist. I have done what was required. Christians are called to put their faith in Christ alone for salvation for forgiveness of sins. It's not by works that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We're to press on in faith, not to draw back in fear because we have no confidence of the reward. We have no confidence of forgiveness or salvation when Jesus has paid the price. A warrior demonstrates confidence in a shield when they're willing to wield it and allow those darts and spears to hit it, right? They're like, this thing's going to hold. It's not going to fail me. That leather's been uh, pulled tight. It's prepared. I'm ready. Like, to throw away the shield, to throw away your confidence, you just turn tail and run because you're afraid to get mowed down by the enemy's assault. Fighters who lacked confidence in battle, that's exactly what they did. They threw down their shield and their weapons as as hindrances of their fleeing. They removed their armor so they could run faster to get away from the battle and save their skins. Plutarch, he wrote this of a Spartan woman. As she handed her son his shield, she exhorted him saying, either this or upon this. Either come home alive with your shield or come 
back home dead carried on your shield. Because that would show that he had been courageous to the end. He had not abandoned the shield and his shield. And we can look at the shields as far as the Roman shield, but the Greek shield, it, they would form a, um, what is it called? A phalanx formation where they would actually interlock their shields together. So my shield is protecting me, but it's also protecting my na- my, the other, my co-fighter, right? It's protecting them as well. It's not just protecting me, it's protecting him. And you're trusting that your companion is not going to bail on you and throw down their shield and run. They're going to stand fast. And that phalanx formation was able to repel and defeat um, great numbers of soldiers, when they were really outnumbered, they were able to stand and hold the line. This is another quote from Plutarch. It says, Asked why it was dishonorable to return without a shield and not without a helmet, the Spartan king Demaratos is said to have replied, Because the latter they put on for their own protection, but the shield for the common good of all. The shield for the common good of all. So the shield's not just for you, but it's for your brethren, the greater good. The shield of faith we have in Jesus, it protects us. It protects our brethren. It supports, it encourages, it edifies, it strengthens. And our confidence is in Christ alone, not in the one next to us. Our confidence is in Christ. We can't cast away our confidence. We need to hold fast to Christ. He's the one who will defend us. He's the one who will protect and provide for all of our needs. He's our only help and hope. Today and every 25 of April in Australia, we observe Anzac Day. When people remember the sacrifice of the Anzacs in Gallipoli in 1915, commemorate the men and women who have served our country and died in all wars, conflicts, and peacekeeping operations. And The Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, they were known for some key values, two of them being uh, courage and endurance. And those are qualities that the writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys need these. Take courage. You need patient endurance. You need to keep going. Don't cast away your confidence. It wasn't that he was doubting their salvation. No, he's saying, don't cast away your confidence in Christ. They needed to run with endurance the race set before them. This word endurance, it's most often rendered patience. Almost every time in the King James, it's patience. And that's God's will for every Christian in every situation, that we would be patient. We would endure. And it was needed to do the will of God. Please turn to James 1, starting in verse 2. I've heard that the Anzacs... uh, were courageous, they were cheerful in the face of impossible odds, right? When the odds were stacked against them and there was really no chance of victory, they kept a good sense of humor, they maintained the line. How much much more cheerful and courageous ought we to be when Christ has already won? When that, the, the victory is not even in doubt. He's won. We can take courage in him because he is our confidence. James 1, verse 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
Being perfect and complete, lacking nothing, sounds really good, doesn't it? Well, patience is the way to get there. And I've, I've heard people say in jest, oh, don't pray for patience. That means trials are coming. But that's God's will for me, that this patience would be done. So I get, I get the, the joke, but the reality is, is we can have, we can be, we are complete in Christ. We can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, knowing that God is in control of those trials that he allows to promote this in us. And it's for us to agree with him and say, I trust God. God is my confidence in this tribulation and difficulty. The Greeks in a phalanx formation, they didn't throw their shields down because they were outnumbered. They actually clung tighter to their shields. And when we're in trials and difficulties, we ought to grip that shield of faith even tighter because Jesus is our only protection. He's our only hope. When we're overwhelmed by trials and suffering and persecution, we ought to hold that shield of faith close, not let go. This quote is taken from Habakkuk 2.4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Notice that, behold the proud. Adonai Bezek, Nebuchadnezzar, Korah, all proud, all of them. It's the same sin that marks Satan where he said, I will be like the Most High. Pride, it demonstrates confidence in self while the just live by faith in God. They wait patiently for him. God, he says, I have no pleasure in the souls of those who draw back, who cower or shrink from adversity. I like what Thomas quoted in the Enduring word commentary, drawing back in the Christian life is sometimes due to disappointment, at other times to depression, at still others to discouragement, but always to distrust. Drawing back, it's a distrust in Christ. So let us grip that shield of faith. Let us draw close to Christ, knowing that he hears us. And then he says, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. So he's like, guys... Let's exhibit the character that we ought to have as children of God. So again, he didn't see their salvation as being tenuous or in question. Like, no, that's not the issue here. But don't draw back. Don't give up. Don't give in to the pressure to uh, revert back to law, to think that you can do anything to gain favor with God when he's given you all through Christ. To depart from Christ is the head to ruin. And that's true for all of us. That's like Samson when he was shorn. Remember? His hair was shaved. The Holy Spirit left him. He doesn't know it. The Philistines are upon him. He's like, I'm going to go out like every other time and just beat him. And who got beat that day? Samson. He did not know that the Spirit had left him. So he had had victory after victory after victory over and over and over. But suddenly he didn't see the risk until he was blind and he was bound and he was bullied by the Philistines. But God wasn't finished with Samson, was he? No, he's not finished with you either. We've come to Christ by faith for forgiveness and salvation. Let's not cast him away when things get tough, when things are difficult. Under law, there was grace offered to the ignorant, and Jesus is the way of forgiveness and salvation for us today. 
As Paul said this in Acts 17, verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. We can be those who draw back, or those who think they're strong when they're really as weak as any other man. We need endurance to do the will of God. We need to allow patience to have its proper work. And not one soul needs to depart from the living God. And God's provided a way for us to boost our spiritual health and to avoid apostasy by gathering together. The only way we can stand is by the grace and power of Christ. And this exhortation we heard last week, it really is an antidote to apostasy. In Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." Today is the day to draw near to God in faith without wavering because Jesus is faithful who has promised. And through faith in him, we have a relationship with the risen living God who promises to reward all who love him. So let's cast away the pride. Let's cast away the unbelief and hold on to our confidence who is Christ. And even those guilty of trampling the blood of Jesus by sinning against knowledge of the truth, they can be forgiven by his sacrifice that was made once for all. So praise the Lord for Jesus. He's our only hope in salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our Savior. Thank you for your word that that gives us hope because, Lord, we are those naturally who draw back. We are those who cast away our confidence. We want to go with what's working today. And we don't have this patient endurance in our flesh that you say we need to do your will. But thank you that through Christ, we are new creations. We are born again through that blood that was shed on Calvary. And through the resurrection of Christ, we can see our need to repent, our need to trust in him for life and salvation. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us one another, that the shield of faith we wield is not just for our own good, but for the good of the brethren, that we could be strengthened and edified and exhorted to keep on going when it's tough to not give up, to not go back to the law, to not go back to sin, but to choose to honor and glorify you who lives forever and ever, who is glorious, merciful, compassionate, a forgiving God, a just God, a God who is to be feared. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Lord, we choose your hands over the hands of men because you are gracious and slow to anger and full of mercy. Thank you, Lord for the knowledge of your truth and for your presence in our lives. And I pray you would show us our need to confess our pride so that we might walk in your ways and honor you and glorify you. Lord, all glory and honor be unto you both now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.